it's totally okay to fail. I think people don't, I think people say that, right? And like, you know, like it's a very common thing in VC culture. It's like, oh yeah, nine out of 10 bets are gonna fail, right? Like they say that. But then when it comes time to fail, nobody wants to be around it. No one wants to own the failure. No one wants to, and like you could see that with like bankruptcy, right? Like people treat it as like a horrible world, like it's gonna scar, it hurts their ego or whatever else. I'm like, it's the best thing about American entrepreneurship is that like you can swing as many times as you want and you get to keep going back up there, right? Sean, welcome to the podcast. Really grateful and honored to have you here and uh, excited to dive into some of your ideas and your story here today. Cool, man. Stoked to be here. Should be fun. I would love to start with a quote you have on obsession slash navigating social norms. And you said, or you wrote one time, one of the hardest parts of being an entrepreneur for me is the difficulty I feel navigating social norms. It's isolating running a company. Most of the media out there paints being a founder slash CEO as an awesome thrill ride or board meetings and takeovers. In reality, it is staring at your computer for 12 hours making sure one new idea works or you're writing. There is so much writing or coaching or thinking and the better you are at it, the more you do it, the longer you do it. And what I have found is it's like specializing in a thing no one understands. It's just harder to relate to people or old friends. It's obsession. Nice. Is that for my Substack? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I've never actually read that stuff out loud. Uh, it's really just random thoughts I write down. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's cool, man. I, I still stand by that. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurship or just business in general, people think it's really cool because they watch the session, they watch billions or whatever. But mm-hmm. it's uh, it's boring as fuck most of the time, right? And that's why it's so funny to like, I mean, we, we really got to take a piss out of each other when people are like, oh, I'm grinding. And it's like, dude, you know, we're in Austin and in my neighborhood, it's like 100 degrees and there's guys outside mowing lawns and like doing lawn work. I'm like, those guys are grinding. You're just tippy tapping on your little computer. Right. Uh, but yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely stand by that. It's funny because I I was going through your Twitter last night and you had one of those tweets that was making fun of of that culture and that idea. And I just was like, that's hilarious. And started laughing out loud based on the way you tweeted. And I, where does, where does it come from? Do you think like the idea that it's so difficult to be an entrepreneur these days and like, where does that idea come from? Uh, well, I think everyone wants just like wants to feel like they're important or they're building like they're the next Zuckerberg or whatever. Like in the reality, we're all just building small businesses. Even even Ridge, you know, Ridge Ridge is a multi hundred million dollar a year business. It's a small business. Like mm. we're we're you know we bank with J P Morgan Chase. We we just moved into their mid market banking right and like literally hundreds of millions of dollars a year go through that Chase Chase Bank account and they're like, Yeah, now you're a mid business. Wow. So it's just you know, in the grand scheme of things, we really are just building, you know, the fifty year fifty years ago would be the equivalent of like a hardware store or whatever, right? But anyway, I think people really like feeling they're building something cool and important and like they want people to take them seriously and uh it's the same reason why like when people like are going to lose weight or whatever, they tell people they're doing it before. And it's like, you know, you want that instant gratification. So you, you have to puff your chest up when in reality, true grinding is like, you don't have time to, to just tweet bullshit on the internet. And a lot of it is pumping your own stock, right? Like in the vast majority of content being created is either the aspirational stuff at the very, very top, like people interviewing Mark Zuckerberg, how he made it, or it's people trying to sell courses or their agency business. So like they're just promoting how great they're doing, where the vast majority of the the small business or entrepreneurial journey is uh, just sucking. <laughs> like It's yeah, like writing, like uh, as a CEO, the the number one thing you do is just write stuff down, right? You know, we're a remote company. Uh, but I think even if you're not a remote company, it's just like you're writing down the stuff you want to happen, like board meeting notes, uh, like leadership meeting notes. It's just a ton of writing. So how have you become a better writer? Oh, I if you read my Substack, I'm a horrible writer. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that because I was going through your Substack and the grammar isn't great. The, <laughs> just point blank. The grammar isn't great on your writing. But the ideas are. And 
it keeps me captivated. And it kept me reading more and more last night as I was going through your stuff. So just because the grammar isn't great doesn't mean to me you're not a great writer. To me, you are a great writer. You have your own unique style. And I think that is like an edge in a way. But how have you become a better writer? Well, right. So I think you should write how people talk. Uh, I mean, a lot of <laughs> like, like a lot of like, you know, writing or any sort of art or media or entertainment or a Twitter post or whatever people like want it to fit into rules or whatever. And I'm like, now nah, I'm just gonna write down everything I say, like, I'm gonna swear a lot, I'm gonna not capitalize because it's just like the way I talk, right. Uh, and the best thing you can have is just brevity, right? Like I think so often, dude, and it's like a telltale sign someone went to like, uh, you know, they have like a four-year English degree is when like, it's just crammed full of like framing and adjectives. And I'm like, bro, I got TikTok brain. This is boring as fuck. <laughs> it's like, just get to the point. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't even consider myself a good writer, but it's just, it's just the ability to just get your idea out as quick as possible with as few distractions, just like getting the brevity as soon as possible. Yeah. And what's so great about your writing from my perspective is it keeps my attention. And, you know, most people think like TikTok brain is a bad thing, but if it keeps your attention and the TikTok brain is a reason why you get bored easily, which then helps you cultivate that attention yourself, that's actually a good thing. Yeah. The other thing is I don't edit it. <laughs> I've never gone through and like, like deleted or like reframed. It's like, hey, if I, if I thought that's the way I should set it when I typed it, that's the way I'm, I'm releasing it. So uh, part of it's lazy, part of it's brevity, and it's just getting to the point as quick as possible. But by no means do I consider myself a writer. It's just as part of the job, you have to fucking write. Like I'm not writing books or whatever. Uh, and I do. I think I think this is a controversial take I have. I think most books are bullshit. It's like it should be a tweet or at most a Substack post. Like people just want to write a book, so they write 500 words. That you could summarize the idea in like three pages. But wow, yeah. I mean, if you had to write a book today, what would it be on? Oh, I mean, the only place I think books serve a purpose is fiction books right mm. like storytelling or what like non-business books i think all business books are bullshit so i don't know man i would write something about vampires or something <laughs> don't what, read business books is what you would yeah yeah, yeah. and look it's a very controversial controversial like people hate when i say that but like mm. so few ideas can't be summarized in like three pages and then if you need to go deeper great like you can you can go to the source material and maybe there are like you know, you could put, you can give people articles, you can give people interviews or whatever, but just like, there's just too many people trying to fill pages to try to sell books or say they wrote a book or whatever, where they should embrace brevity and just release tweets, basically, Twitter threads. That's, that's what I think the highest form of, of the written word is. Yeah. Interesting. You know, it's, it's crazy because I don't mean to bury the lead here, but you went from Growing up, you said, I grew up in an economically depressed area during the opiate epidemic. I knew folks who died of heroin overdoses. Most problems in America today stem from the opioid crisis. Now I'm 28 and run a nine-figure business. I won. Like, that's a crazy statement in and of itself. And to go from, you know, knowing people who were in that place to now running nine-figure business, like, that's pretty insane. Like, do you ever stop and look at yourself and like, how did I get here? Like, what's going on? And how did you get here? Yeah, man, it sounds like bragging when you read it back. I've never, I've never read these out loud. Uh, no, yeah, man. So I'm from, I'm from the Northwest. Uh, and when people think of the Northwest, they think of Seattle, right? And Seattle's a great city, Amazon, Microsoft, whatever. But the rest of the area surrounding it, I'm from like halfway between Seattle and Canada. It's a uh, it's like Appalachia. It's just like, or like, it's like the Rust Belt, basically. It's like a bunch of old manufacturing jobs that have like gone away. And the opioid epidemic hit everywhere really hard, I think, post 2008. But like, uh, there was just multiple deaths in my high school. Like, like, so I'm from town. There was a barn that like, every time a kid died, they would like paint it. And like, uh, it like it became such a common practice throughout high school because so many kids were dying. Oh my um, god! So yeah, it was, I mean, it's a super fucked up era. There's a documentary on YouTube I can send you. But um, what's it called? It's called the Death Barn. <laughs> the Death Barn. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a place called Stanwood. So that's that's where I was from. Uh, and yeah, man. I mean, I don't think anybody 
made it out of there or did anything. I mean, like there's it, there's definitely like like a solid middle class people. It was like a bedroom community for Seattle, so like a lot of people worked at Boeing or a lot of people would like you know have jobs at Amazon and like commute down. But uh, the uh, there was definitely 20, 30 percent of the town was just super fucked up on drugs. Um, so yeah, man. So that's where I'm from. Uh, and how did I get out? Uh, by not so like I, I remember I went to an alternative high school because I got into a bunch of trouble, right? And I just remember seeing like the the principal's name was Dan. Like really wanted to like try and help people, but like just I could tell he was like the most depressed man ever. <laughs> like he was like forty. I'm pretty sure his wife diver- divorced him, and he was just like sitting there like having to deal with like troublemaking kids. And I remember just thinking like, man, if I listen to this guy, I'm gonna end up like this guy. So I'm gonna do everything the opposite uh so i ended up going to like an online college and ended up moving down to la and got a job like at an ad agency and then uh by like not following traditional paths i think you can get non-traditional outcomes so that's how i get to run ridge a a great business that makes a fuck ton of money (laughs) without having to you know just be on the path everybody else is on did it any part of you consider going down the path of the 20 to 30 percent oh yeah i mean it was super common to like you know get fucked up in middle school and high school like i'm, I'm from a place where, like i remember growing up it's probably different now but like you could just drunk drive like everybody did it there just wasn't cops and like and like and if, if anybody's from like a rural area like they would understand this it's like it's just like fields and shit <laughs> like everywhere <laughs> like you can kind of just do whatever you want um so yeah, I mean that was that was a lot of the high school experience, but I just remember seeing like everyone around me not having a great time, and I'm like, I'm just gonna get out of here. Uh, so I just bailed. You knew at a young age. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, I I yeah, always been incredibly independent. So like, raised by my dad, but he traveled for work like a ton, so I was mostly by myself. So like, that's why I ended up going to independent school because like. I couldn't get to school. Like I'd have to like get myself up, get on a bus, do whatever. So I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna do online high school uh, and even middle school. Like it was like in the seventh grade. So I've been out of the traditional education system for for a long time. I feel like a lot of people might look at that as like a, a chip on their shoulder, of like I'm not, I wasn't put in the same system as everyone else. Did you ever feel that way? Uh, no, man, I think, I think it's probably my biggest benefit because yeah. if I went to the high school, like I would have got a job at Boeing like everybody else. So being outside the system has been awesome. Cause like really when, when you leave the system, you see that like, oh, like all of those people don't really know what to do. Right. Like mm. I often, I often bring up like, you know, I'm growing up in the Northwest in like throughout the two thousands and like nobody I know talked about buying Amazon stock. Like nobody's parents were like, dude, Amazon, I'm like, it ends up being a $1.5 trillion company, literally like 50 miles away from us. And like, nobody was talking about it. I'm like, oh, cause nobody has any fucking idea. It's just like people just live in their lives or whatever. So getting outside the system has just been incredibly beneficial. I don't think I ever got to trip my shoulder about it, but I very much was like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do my own shit. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say to people who, might find themselves on a more traditional path, but they're listening to this and they're like, how the hell do I get out of this? You know, sometimes you get, I mean, your parents want you to be the safest, have the safest path possible. But if people are listening to this, they're often not on the safest path and or, and or want to not be on the quote unquote safest path, which might actually end up being the safest path if you're betting on yourself. And so like, what what could you give people by way of advice to think about the traditional path that they're on and help them wake up. Yeah, you should optimize for outcomes, right? So um, there's nothing wrong with being the safest path or normal member of society or any of that, like 80, 90% of the population is on this on the same trajectory and it's totally cool and it's good. You can have a family and a life and it's awesome uh, as long as you want that outcome, right? But like, you know, there's only like one W-2 job in America where you can consistently make a million dollars a year and it's being a partner at a big law firm. And it's like, and it's like, you know, like doctors don't make that, right? Like, like a doctor 
you know, at, outside of residency, a couple years in the thing is making like a quarter million dollars a year, which is an awesome fucking life, right? You can do that anywhere. You could live in Buffalo, New York and buy whatever house you want. But uh, it's like that's the top end of the traditional path, right? And it's like it's you can meet agency guys doing two times that, three times that, right? And they, they don't have to go operate on people. They can have a low stress quality of life. Um, so anyway, you should optimize for outcomes. Like any outcome is okay. You should understand what outcome you want and then you can like find the path to get there, right? And I think a lot of people think they want to be, you know, a billionaire or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, that's that's a very difficult path. <laughs> it's like optimizing for outcomes is incredibly difficult, but uh, you, you, can, you can build an awesome business. You can build a lifestyle business. Uh, and you can just understand those things. Also, the next piece of advice would be like, it's totally okay to fail. I think people don't, I think people say that, right? And like, you know, like it's a very common thing in VC culture. It's like, oh yeah, nine out of 10 bets are going to fail, right? Like they say that. But then when it comes time to fail, nobody wants to be around it. No one wants to own the failure. No one wants to, and like you could see that with like bankruptcy, right? Like people treat it as like a horrible world. Like it's going to scar, it hurts their ego or whatever else. I'm like, it's the best thing about American entrepreneurship is that like you can swing as many times as you want and you get to keep going back up there, right? And I, I was telling a guy, uh, maybe last week, like he has, he had like a, a brand that blew up during COVID, uh, but like he didn't do his accounting right and he's losing money and he's like, oh, hey, I'm gonna, he's like, he's like, how do I fix this? He's like, he's like, sales are going down. I don't have money to buy inventory. I'm like, I'm like, oh yeah, there's one way to fix it, man. You're going to go bankrupt. <laughs> I'm like, and he just like, it's devastating. Right. Like, and I'm, I'm sure if you had to go through that, like you're, like you're, you're fucking, you're, you're going to puke. You're like, your stomach's in knots. You're like, Oh, I failed. I'm like, Hey, look, man, everybody fails. <laughs> Move on. Right. Uh, so anyway, optimize for your outcome and just do not be scared of failure. And that is surface level advice, but really understand it and really own it that like, dude, you can totally lose everything and it's totally fine. Yeah. As long as you're still breathing. Yeah, yeah. You're still in the fight. And as long as you don't owe the government taxes, because you can't get out of bankruptcy on that, and they'll send you to jail. So it's like, just make sure you're paying your taxes, make sure you're paying your sales tax, make sure you're paying whatever income tax you have to pay. Everything else, just fucking, it's totally cool if it goes goes out of business. It's hilarious. You mentioned before about Ridge being a $1 billion company, and that is your current mission. And after that, you are trying to build a different company that either gets to 10 billion or a hundred billion. And when do you, like you're, you're a real forward thinker in terms of what you want and what you want to optimize for. And I'm curious, like when you made those realizations about both of them. Uh, I mean, I remember sitting down with my CMO Connor in 2017. So this is before uh, we merged with Ridge, right? I used to own an ad agency business me and Connor came on board with Ridge. Now there's like five of us that own the whole thing. Um, and I remember being like, we can get Ridge to a hundred million dollars. And he's like, me and you can't. I'm like, I'm like, bet. I'm like, I, I totally think we can. And uh, so anyway, I rub, rub that in his face all the time. And if Connor's listening, I'm going to rub it in his face again. Uh, but yeah, when I started going down the path of like, okay, what does it take to get to a hundred million dollars? And like really understanding public comps, right? Cause like, you talk to a lot of people like, oh, I want to build a billion dollar business, right? And it's like, okay, well, what's your industry, right? It's like, like I'm just going to keep picking on agencies because that's my background. It's like, oh, I'm going to build a billion dollar business. I'm like, there's no billion dollar agencies. There's one, <laughs> right? Like, and they, What they, is it? I think it's called like WMC or something, okay. right? It's, it's, it's public. They just, they own like 50 agencies. Gotcha. And it's definitely not their name. I can't remember it right now. Uh, but I'm like, yeah, there's one of them. So you will not build a billion dollar agency, right? It's like, okay, well, I'll build a hundred million dollar agency. I'm like, there's 15. <laughs> I'm like, you have to start understanding that. And, you know, when you start understanding public comps, I'm like, oh yeah, getting rich to a billion dollar outcome is incredibly easy, right? Because uh, there's just a countless list of consumer brands who've sold for a billion dollars, right? And like, we're publicly traded and worth a billion dollars right now. We're in Austin. Yeti's my favorite brand. Yeti's worth about $4 billion right now. Or on running, the shoe company, they're worth about $9 billion right now, right? Now, could I get rich to $100 billion? I'm like, there's only three outcomes in consumer that are, that are $100 billion that aren't roll-ups, right? Like, you know, P&G or whatever else. Uh, 
Hermes is worth, you know, 170 or whatever. Nike is worth like 140. And then you got Lululemon around 50, right? Lululemon is worth more than Honda. When you start talking about like the multiple billions of dollars, the comps are crazy. So it's like Lululemon, the brand that makes leggings, is worth as much money as Honda who makes cars, right? A global brand selling cars everywhere. So it's like when you start getting a consumer, it's like, oh, it's very hard to get consumer to a hundred billion dollar outcome, right? But there are businesses that can be that are that are hundred billion dollar outcomes, right? Um, you know, tech is the obvious example. There's fintech companies or banking companies that get there. Uh, very large tech-enabled services like Uber, or uh, you know, like legacy businesses, banking, insurance, whatever else. So, so how far along is Ridge on that journey? Oh. Uh, I've, I've talked about this in other podcasts. We, we were offered uh, multiple hundreds of million dollars in the past. But this was peak 2021, 2022 bubble, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I mean, I, I think if I wanted a billion-dollar valuation on the business, by 2026, we'll get that. So, Wow. And it's just, it's just a multiple of EBITDA, right? So, like, we are mid-eight figures in EBITDA. So when I get to nine figures in EBITDA, you'll, you're, you have a billion-dollar business, right? Very, very fascinating. And then it's cool that you've already planned out like your next thing. I got I got like 20 things that I, that, 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 that kick around. That I'm like, oh, yeah, all of these could be at least a $10 billion business. And the, the biggest thing there is just picking your industry, right? Like to start a business, you should pick something you love because you have to work on it every single day, right? So like, you know, you shouldn't just be like, oh, you know, the largest market caps are like, you know, Chase. I'm just going to build Chase. It's like, well, do you love banking? <laughs> do you love consumer and large scale banking? It's like, no, you've never done that before. I'm like, okay, well, let's not pick for market cap, right? Let's pick for something you actually want to do. But you have to like align what you want to do with like the highest possible outcome or whatever you want the outcome to be, right? And if you're like, hey, I just want to make $500,000 a year very passively, it's like, okay, you should build a service business, right? Like, I bet my pool guy's making five hundred thousand dollars a year, right? Because he's got a bunch of different pool guys running around doing whatever. And it's like, so you should choose whatever your outcome is, and then choose whatever your passion is, and line those things. And I'll tell you, my pool guy is so passionate about pools, like he wants to talk about them all the time. And I'm like, dude, I don't care. <laughs> it, it's funny because the question that I get a lot is like, dude, how are you so ambitious? Like one of my goals for this podcast is to sell out Madison Square Garden, and it sounds like you're trying to get one billion dollar exit, and then multiple 10 10x that or 100x that billion dollar exits like that to me seems like a a massive vision and i think a lot of people are curious like how do i even dream that big i mean uh someone's got to do it (laughs) it's like it's like madison's like like breaking down your goal you can you can you know this is like the operator in me it's like no, we can just break that down, man. It's like, 19,763 people. All right. Well, if I get that on each episode and then I continue to scale that up and then I'm going to need more than 19,763 people to actually get those in the stadium. They all have to be in New York. I might have, you know, like there, there's a lot of things that go on, but it's, it's just an equation, right? Dude, a hundred percent. It's yeah. like, and like what I go to is Madison Square Garden has to sell tickets every night. <laughs> like they have a business. Yes. They need people in those seats. So it's like, they don't care if it's you or if it's a sports game or if it's a rodeo. They're like, we just need to, to and you're like, okay, cool. I'll kind of have Thursday three years from now. And like, I'll make sure people show up. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's the whole thing is like every, every problem is solvable. And, you know, I think a lot of people, when, when people are like, oh, how, why do you think you can do it? It's like, someone's got to fucking do it. Like, someone runs these consumer brands. You know what I mean? Like, and I've met people running at the very top. And I'm like, damn, dude, you're not very smart. <laughs> That's- I got a quote from you on that. You said, here's one lesson I wish everyone would learn. Rich people are more lucky than smart. Most of them are stupid as shit and just happen to make one right call one time. You deserve it as much as they do. Don't make them look like, don't make them make you think that they are special yeah 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 that's your quote and and that applies to like a lot of self-made rich people it's even worse if if your parents gave you money i'm like that's the cringiest thing on earth mm-hmm. right uh but yeah i i stand by i stand, I stand by that 100 percent, man uh most people uh think that like oh i don't have x y or z to take me to whatever that next level is and it's like nah dude i've met some people who are like 
you know, every city has like a lawyer, right? Like, and like they're on buses and they're on billboards or whatever, right? Uh, and like those lawyers are all making like tens of millions of dollars each and they're stupid. <laughs> like, they're just like, oh, I'm going to chase ambulances like that guy in the other town, right? I'm going to buy billboards, I'm going to do that type of stuff. So, uh, I, too often, I think we, we create financial success with like morality, one. That's why I think bankruptcy is totally fine. Like, I don't think if you have money, you're better, or if you lose money, you're worse, right? I think too often society would do that. And then we also just like assist it with like being good or smart or talented. It's like, nah, man, like those things can be totally different. There's incredibly talented people who have absolutely nothing, right? Um, and it's just, it, the, the world is not a, uh, a perfect system like that. Yeah, it's funny how we equate wealth to morality and intelligence. You would think that is the case. Like somebody who makes a lot of money should be smart in our heads. But then if you actually meet that person or those people, it doesn't actually work out and equate that way. And like, do you have any particularly notable examples or stories of like you meeting somebody you thought was way more impressive and actually meeting them and being like, oh, that's just a human being. Not, you don't have to share names or anything or whatever, but I'm just curious. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a, there's a couple billionaires who threw a party in Austin and it was like a poker thing. And I went there and I just remember looking at them and like a couple of them, incredibly nice, super chill, awesome dudes hanging out with. And then a couple of them like, I'm like, oh, damn, you're old as hell. Like, I'm like, you're like my grandpa. It's like, they're like, they're like old, they're disheveled. They're like, they're broken down. And I'm like, I'm like, and like a ton of young people hanging around. I'm like, dude, all these people here just because like you're rich. And I'm like, that's sad as fuck. And uh, yeah, yeah. So that, that that's an example of like one of the times I realized I'm like, oh, these are people I really look up to for their business accomplishments. But then I'm like, oh, damn, they actually, it looks like they have the saddest life ever. Uh, but like, look, I've been in a ton of meetings with bankers or buyers or strategic partners or people working at companies and like, I mean, there's a private company that no one's ever heard of. Like they, they're super under the radar, but they do multiple billions a year in revenue in the consumer space, like 3 billion plus. And the guy running the business, I'm like, this is one of the dumbest people I've ever met in my entire life. Like just disinterested, just like, you know, not thinking about like any upcoming black swan events. Like this is post COVID anyway. Uh, yeah, dude, it happens all the time. Most people at the very top businesses suck. Now, very large corporations like, you know, the Apple team or the, or the Meta team, like when you meet them, like their strategy is to hire like on paper the smartest, most compassionate, empathetic, like like they really have like a type like to hire and it's like, oh, these are like A plus people. But I, there's a disconnect because they've been on traditional path for so long, like they can't really break shit down and operate, right? And I think that's why you have complacency at all these companies. Wow, that's fascinating. I, I want to go to people who are starting going zero to one in a D2C type company today. I have a bunch of friends who are building companies in e-commerce. And I'm, I'm curious, like, I obviously, it's so far from where you currently are today. But I'm sure you pay attention to new brands starting out, what they do right, what they do wrong. And does anything in particular come to mind? Yeah, dude, I talk to people all the time. I'm like, why are you trying to do this? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like like it sucks R like running a d2c brand specifically in the zero to one stage sucks it's like dude you are so like and you know a lot of it's optimism and i and i and i i, I wish them the best it's like you're so close to failure at every single point like you know just name any any of them we could talk through the problem like the problems that that business faces and it's Financing inventory is a pain in the ass, right? Uh, you have to buy customers, right? That's a huge pain in the ass, it's a huge expense. Then you have to make sure it all pencils out. And then you're also trying to like pay yourself, scale up a team, like build in infrastructure, build systems, right? And uh, you're doing all that and it's like, do you really love consumer? Like, do you really want to be doing this? Like, you should only do it if you're obsessed with it and like, like you literally couldn't dream of anything else. Obsessed right? with what in particular? The product you're selling, specifically the product you're selling, because everything else is just a byproduct of getting your products in people's hands. Like some people have so much joy when like they make a beverage and like they see people drinking it and they're like, this is great. It's a great beverage. Like, or like you have to think of people who think 
like truly that their product is saving people's lives, right? Like Dave Asprey or something. Like I don't know if he's a good example, but any of those guys who are like, like no, people need this. The Mudwater guys come to mind, right? I've met them, uh, you know, back in the very early days. Like this is like 2017. They had no money, but like, and they were making a gross ass drink, and they're like, this is better than coffee, and and they really believed it, right? Like they lived that life, so like they were destined to be successful in consumer because they couldn't have a world where people weren't having this, right? Um, so unless you're that, like, like, and that's why, like, you know, the guy I was talking about earlier who's going bankrupt, he was selling leggings. And I'm like, do you care about leggings? Are you obsessed with women's fashion? And he's like, no, just like I, I found this, like these good designs on Alibaba. I'm like, yeah, then you should get out. <laughs> like, the, like, you know, uh, Tourists visit beach towns in summer, right? And they don't visit in winter, right? Like people live in Maine all year round. People live in Maine in December, right? But like you show up in August uh, and it's just like consumer, I think the next three years in consumer are actually going to be really good, right? But the past three years have been very strange. So like we're, we're in the December, right? Like we are in the cold season, like vacation rentals are, are, are boarded up. So if you're a tourist in the industry, if you don't, love this life you should you should definitely not be in consumer right now but you said it's going to be really good for the next three years i think i think there is a turning point coming where it's going to get really good why is that i i just i did a bunch of analysis on it and and, and i shared it but uh the tldr is that um e-commerce sales and that's really what i care about right well you could take consumer you can also mean in-person sales or retail sales or whatever i really care about e-commerce sales it's like our bread and butter for our business um we're currently at like 15% e-commerce penetration rate, right? The COVID sp like spike was like 16, 16 and a half. Um, so we're beneath the COVID spike. That's why the past 18 months have felt really, really bad, right? And like I've been very open that like I think we're going to see more consumer bankruptcies because of this pull down. And really what that means is that like, you know, there was a lot, there was more dollars being spent online and there was less real dollars spent online, right? So you know, if 16.5% of, of, of all consumer sales are happening online, now it's 15%, it's like that is a 10% reduction. So without economic growth, right, the average store would be down 10%. If, if everything played back, there's less dollars happening online, right? Uh, so growing right now is, is, is you're, you're beating gravity, right? You're beating the market. Like uh, you're, you're achieving alpha versus what the beta would be, which is 10% decrease. There has been GDP growth. So like just ignore that for a little bit. But like that is... That is the the reality, uh, and if you look at the e-commerce trend rate pre-COVID, it was growing like two to three percent per quarter, right? Um, so it was going from ten to you know the ten point three, and like every quarter it'd be going up. And we are beneath the trend line. So if COVID didn't happen, we would be at sixteen percent. We're at fifteen percent right now, right? Uh, and what that tells me and my conclusion, my hypothesis is that um, COVID created uh, this big forced adoption of e-commerce, right? Got us to 16.5%, right? We, we got two or three years worth of growth in one quarter and we're still in the revenge period where people are pulling back, right? They're going to Taylor Swift concerts, they're, they're, they're traveling way more. And that was really last summer was really, really hot with European travel, right? But they're still just doing more stuff IRL. But I think e-commerce wins in the end, right? There's a reason why since 2000, it, it's had a very steady growth rate from 0% to, you know, 15% now. So I think we'll get to 19 or 20% um, e-commerce penetration by Q4 next year, which is just a rapid spike. And I think, so I think we've overcorrected to one ditch and we're going to go back to the other one, which is just, uh, you know, more e-commerce penetration. It's fascinating looking at your Substack, and I guess in the past six months it's been really good with e-commerce and in in general and i was looking at your Substack, and you were saying i'm winning right now and the truth is there's like either 15 to 50 to 70 percent reason i have no idea why i'm winning and i was like wow like that to me makes you so trustworthy as a writer and as a person of like you admitting that there are a bunch of reasons i could attribute to what our success has been but the truth is i really don't know and you don't often hear a CEO of a nine-figure company talking like that, which is really cool and refreshing. 
Yeah, I think because people are scared that like, well, either they're they're pumping their own stock that they really think that they're fucking driving all these results, right? Which is like they're just delusional, or uh, like they're scared that they're gonna be called like that's like a fraud or a failure, or like their authority will be questioned in the organization and be like, yeah, I don't know why we're doing good, right? But uh, <laughs> yeah. It's been an awesome year. This will be the best year for Ridge ever, right? Like profit up 100% year over year, sales up at least 50% year over year. Just like we're crushing it. And uh, look, I, I attribute some of this success to like product uh, diversification, right? So uh, we used to sell a lot of wallets. We still sell a lot of wallets. We never sell a lot of rings too. So like that really helps. And we're going to put more money into product diversification. Uh, the other one is that like if it's hard for other people, the ad prices are cheaper. <laughs> so like so if like uh, – you know, big VC rounds aren't happening and those dollars were just going to Facebook. Like, well, I still, I, I'm very steady spending on Facebook. And if, 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 you know, if the CPMs are lower than they were yesterday, it's like, it's good for me. Right. And then part of it is like, you know, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't fucking know. Like if things are going good, I'm not going to question it, but it's just like, there's not one thing I can point to like, oh, I'm that much better than everybody else. Like, no, I have no fucking idea. There's probably way more talented operators, way smarter people uh, who've raised money, who've done all these type of things. And like, yeah, they're just in a product that people don't want and people want my thing. So that's great. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. It's so funny and it, it's so real and it helps you, I feel like, be more personable and just like a human being. Whereas a, a CEO of a nine-figure company, maybe five, 10 years ago, it would be rare for them to say something like that, which is, is really cool. I, I want to go to influencers and as well as your um, your understanding of the whole market. And I, I was reading a breakdown, which I'll, I'll link down below from you about the different eras of YouTube and the different eras of content creation. And I thought it was very impactful because I'd never seen it I felt it, you know, I'm 27, 28 years old, so I've I've been through the cycles of being online, but I've never really seen it break down or broken down in the way you did in the Substack. And I think you like highlighted a Reddit post and you were like, this is directionally accurate, which I'll link down below. And I'm curious what you think is the current state of influencers after spending so much money with so many different influencers and content creators and where we're going in the next five years. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I wish I would have spent money on YouTube sooner, right? And if people look at like the breakdowns, right? Like there was there was like the the pre mainstream era, which is like you know the the like the first time people coming online. You call that for like two thousand eight to two thousand twelve or thirteen or fourteen, right? Like when AdSense was still really new. Like it would have been awesome to sponsor people back then because I think you would have made a fuck ton of money, right? Um, it just like you you would have been the only sponsor and uh, you could have paid very, very low CPMs. Um, and then we, we rode, you know, we sponsored probably over 5,000 YouTubers at this point. 5,000 YouTubers. Wow. Yeah, probably over 5,000 individuals. How many sales. companies can say that? I mean, Squarespace, <laughs> they sponsor everybody. Uh, That's great. You know, Audible, they're, they're sponsoring everybody. True. Um, but so we, uh, you know, we've, I think that strategy really peaked 2017, 2018, 2019. You know, we kept sponsoring aggressively throughout, uh, you know, throughout the first part of COVID. Around the second half of 2021 and 2022, that's when we started things. That's when things really fell apart, where, like, when it fell apart for me, I bet it was great for influencers. You just, you end up having, you know, uh, crypto companies come in. You end up having just, like, a ton of VC dollars pour in. And if you're a crypto company, you can't really spend money on Facebook very effectively, right, or at all. So they were just fucking up the market, right, where FTX would give people a thousand dollar CPMs. They'd be like, just promote my thing. We now know that they were stealing customers' funds to to, to buy those ads, right? Um, but yeah, they definitely fucked it up. So we 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 just kept our core group of people going through 2022, and this year. You know, really, the second half of last year, a lot of big sponsors pulled out. Like, we were at VidCon. I was at VidCon in 2022, which is in July. And, like, I remember being pulled pulled uh, to the side by one of the very large boxing YouTubers' managers. Once a who, and they're like, hey, dude, people are pulling out. Like, will you lock in spots? And we ended up locking spots in with, with a ton of people because we have consistent dollars, but they're lower, right? It's the same thing with Facebook ads. It's like... 
I buy consistently and I, I just benefit when CPMs are lower. Um, so anyway, we, we're very, we will pay less than everybody, but we will always pay you, right? Uh, so anyway, that's, that kind of fell apart. And the, there was like a, a, a 12 month or 18 month window where the, the ecosystem was very uh, perverted because of just dollars coming in. It's, it's definitely getting a lot better, but where is it going? I think that's a more interesting question, right? Um, long form content on YouTube has been declining for a long time. Obviously YouTube as a platform is continuing to grow, but the growth is slower than the channel growth, right? So the average long form video is getting less views. It used to be in 2017, we'd sponsor, you know, a dozen people and half those videos would get a million views, right? There was just, there was a, a more of a concentration of views on content. Um, and because of TikTok has created for you content, right? Hyper personalized content, and YouTube is mimicking that, right? If I go, if I pull up my my YouTube like home feed right now, I bet none of the videos have more than two thousand or maybe five thousand views, right? Now, there are people that break this exception, right? Like you know, Mr. Beast, and and that's where I think uh, YouTube is falling into two different, uh, you know, poles. There's very large blockbuster entertainment, right? And that is the Mr. Beast of the world, or you could put Ryan Trahan, or you could put, you know, uh, maybe Emma Chamberlain, like the people who will consistently get millions of views. Mr. Beast obviously gets 100 million. He's, he's, he's way out here. And then 80% of it is people getting 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, 50,000, people who do not break into the mainstream, and it's because of personalized for you content. So that's where currently, you know, the, the bifurcation is. I think we'll see more of this landscape going forward. There's gonna be more channels eking out a living at 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 like views. Uh, and there's gonna be less of like the mega channels. It's just hard to be a mega star, right? Like the, the Jake Pauls, the Logan Pauls, the, the you know, the, the, the old mega stars, just we're, more of them are not coming up. Um, so what should somebody listening to this as a content creator who's maybe in their first year of creating stuff, what should they think about and what should they do if they hear that? Well, level set. Do you want to be famous, right? Like that's that's something where, like, I look at Colin and Samir, right? Colin and Samir, my favorite channel. Right? Me too. Uh, I love Colin and Samir. Shout out Colin and Samir. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, they have a million subs, right? They have Creator Sports, a podcast, right? Uh, they make very... It's, it's it's niche content, right? Like I listen to it, you listen to it because we love this thing, right? But 14-year-olds who like Fortnite don't want to watch that, right? Or like my uh, my wife's a bad example because she's a content creator. But, you know, go on the street and ask people if they're interested. They'd be like, this is so boring. Why would I want to listen to an interview with Mr. Beast or whatever? They'd be like, I don't care. And, and that's the difference is like, is do you want to be like, you know, generally liked and regarded for who you are or, or, or whatever, or are you okay being like a niche content creator? Cause you can make a, a, a crazy living. I have a podcast that gets no fucking views and sponsors give us a hundred thousand dollars, right? Like, uh, I shouldn't say it has no views, it has 2000 <laughs> views. We're very proud of those. Right. Um, but so you can make a decent living as like a very, you know, uh, targeted industry specific talking about what you're an expert in but like no one's stopping me on the street you know <laughs> like nobody cares who i am you probably just don't get out enough nah yeah no <laughs> uh but you know mr beast right or, or any of those large like they're, they're famous for who they are right like general fame or whatever it's that's definitely a curse but uh so figure out what you actually want on that spectrum right like you can the world needs content the, the world loves content like uh, and you know, it could be educational, it could be entertainment, it could be whatever, but figure out where you want to be on that path. But generally speaking, if you are creating just entertainment content for the masses on YouTube, it is very hard right now to go from a 50,000 sub creator to a 5 million sub creator. There's so few examples of that happening post COVID, mm. like a handful, right? Um, and that's just be like, and it, it it used to be there was there was so much growth in, in, in sub count, you know, in the the 2010s era. That's just mostly gone as as content has become more personalized. It's interesting looking at somebody like even Andrew Schultz, who has said before like he'll get stopped, and someone will 
come up to him and be like, holy shit, it's Andrew Schultz. And the person next to him, who that is that person's friend, will have no idea who Andrew is. And I think that speaks to the for you nature of it is like, to me, Andrew Schultz is like the biggest comedian in the world. But to somebody else who likes comedy, Andrew Schultz might not even exist in some way. And that's an interesting thing. What does that mean for society when we're living in completely different realities? Yeah. I mean, we're, uh, there's the lack of cultural milestones, right? Um, you know, who is, who is the last celebrity everybody knows, right? I mean, it's going to be somebody from Marvel or, you know, maybe Zendaya and Tom Holland, like, you know, Kim Kardashian. Yeah. 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 Like, you know, and there's fewer true celebrities than there have ever been, right? Like they're still putting Matt Damon and, and fucking Brad Pitt in movies. Those guys are like 50 or 60 years old, right? But like, and Tom Cruise is still fucking in, like, and it's because he's 60 years old, and like, it's because people recognize him, right? And there's there is less of that going forward. Um, yeah, and you have to think about like every generation has cultural milestones, and like, what are the next ones going to be when every when when it is a hyper fragmented world, right? Where my the content I consume today is totally different than the content you consume, right? Um, not we, not like, that different. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> yeah, we, like, we, we, but obviously, like, if you're looking, if you're looking at demos, it's like, oh yeah, two entrepreneur guys who are 28 or 29 living in Austin. It's like we, our four you pages should be exactly perfect because 30 years ago we would watch the same movies, we read the same books, we talk about the same things. Yeah, and I, I think there's actually a huge benefit to it that doesn't often get discussed, in that. Even though we're similar archetypes, but have different for you pages and are consuming different content means we're getting better in slightly different ways. Like you might be going deep on e-com stuff. I might be listening to podcast stuff. And that difference of content that we're consuming makes us better in the ways that we want to be better, which as a whole makes society better. Think about like the kid who could only watch YouTube videos of like, uh, like Sports Center, but now this kid can watch basketball highlights or soccer highlights and watch them on repeat. That kid is going to be so much better from watching that content. Yeah, that is a very positive and productive way to look at it. Or they're just watching dance videos <laughs> or whatever, right? Uh, or or memes or, or Subway Surfer with somebody cutting you know balloons up or whatever, right? <laughs> but yeah, no, no. I think I think that is that is a very interesting observation. Um, you know, going going to the cultural milestones, it's like, look, the the, the JFK assassination, landing on the moon. Hmm. I'm sure there's some shit for the Vietnam War or whatever. But then we have 9/11, and then I think the last one that I think is super culturally relevant for everybody is like, and maybe not even not so. But I was I remember where I was in 2016 when Trump got elected. It's like, yeah, those are like, you know, yeah. I don't know if there's any. I mean, maybe COVID. Yeah, yeah. Like where you where you were when COVID happened. Right? When the NBA announced that they were going to stop playing games to me that was like a big moment that is the moment i remember too so i guess i guess it's that and then uh yeah so then i guess there, there's still cultural milestones but look every generation says that like the next one's gonna be fucked so <laughs> and we've been fine yeah. so we're gonna be fine but going back to like if you're a consumer brand who wants to sponsor influencers mm. i think it's it's a very difficult time and like you might be better off just doing paid media because like at the end of the day you're buying cpms and a cpm's as views are lower across the board, it is harder to find deals that make sense. Um, like, look, we're still, I mean, we'll, we'll sign 300 deals this month, right? So like, we're still finding deals that make sense, but there are less of them and they're harder to come by than they used to be. So that is, a, that's the brand side for influencer. And then if you're a content creator who wants to be an influencer or whatever else, I mean, there's probably more ways to monetize that than ever before, right? Like, you should build audience so that you can launch a product or business or service or whatever. And like you have people who want to support you and help you. Yeah, that's good advice. What do you look for in those 300 deals? What are you looking for when you're sponsoring somebody? Yeah, I mean, what we look for is uh, demos, view count, cost. Like, like we are, we are the least strategic when it comes to picking view, like deals, right? Mm. Like some people are like, oh, that's our image or like that person represents us. My wife uh, is sponsored by Lululemon. So every month she has to post like one or two videos from Lululemon, right? They pay a ridiculous amount of money for her posts, right? Like 
it, it doesn't make any financial sense, right? Like, it, I don't know why they're doing this. But someone at Lululemon is like, oh, like, this is the type of person we want posting. So, like, we need them to post. That's one end of the spectrum. And then there's us that's like, oh, they agreed to do it for $100? Great. Yeah, let's just do that, right? So, uh, look, other brands fall somewhere in between that, right? If you're more of a fashion brand, maybe you have an aesthetic or image you want to you know, really get across on your social media presence, like that's probably closer to Lululemon. And then maybe you're, you know, a little scrappier, you're a little more like us. So there's a whole spectrum there. And when you look at trying to get to that $1 billion valuation, what are some things that could hold you back from getting to that vision? Yeah, dude, the the biggest thing going against our business, I mean, it's also one of the best, right, is like we sell a wallet. Like there's no billion dollar wallet companies. There, wallet company is in a category, right? It's like yeah. there's billion dollar accessory brands, right? There's multi hundred billion dollar accessories brands, right? LVMH is worth as much as Walmart, right? It's worth 350 or $400 billion. They're an accessories company, right? Like they mostly sell. And look, they have they have awesome fashion lines and cut to sew and runway or whatever. But most of their revenue is small leather goods, right? If that's bags or wallets or belts or whatever. Uh, so, what is our the biggest challenge against us is that most of our revenue right now comes from wallets, and wallets aren't a category, right? We need to become an accessories brand. We need to become a luxury brand, like some other type of brand. That's that's the what we're going through the next probably two to three years. Yeah. One thing that I heard on a previous podcast that you did that was so obvious to me, but something that I'm not sure everybody does is you're like, you should know your profit every single day. And it's like so simple, so obvious. I just said that. I'm like, yeah, duh, like obviously. But how do you think that every company or every person listening to this actually knows their profit every single day? And the answer is probably not. And so... What do you think about that? And like, why do you, why do so many people struggle to do that or to just think about that in general? Yeah, man, I don't know, man. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think uh, like there's a real problem where people want to be idea guys, right? Where they're like, they're like, nah, like, you know, like I'm, I'm working on this or whatever. And it's like, bro, until you are a public company, you do not get to not be in the weeds on making money every single day or maybe people haven't thought they could like they could look at this or like you you should know how much money you spent on marketing yesterday how much money you spent on cogs yesterday and your total revenue that's the bare minimum you should know right but then it's super easy to be like what is the rough cost of running my business every month like and if you don't have those things you don't deserve to be in business right like you it's it it should take you less than 10 minutes maybe 20 minutes to pull all this information right and be like okay i lost a thousand dollars yesterday right so often people are like oh i'm winning for my accountant or there's some other thing or like whatever like I'm trying to scale or whatever. I'm like, dude, that's how people go out of business. And like, you end up having loans, you end up doing this other stuff. And you're like, oh wait, I've been running at a loss, right? Cause like they're waiting for invoices from 3PLs or whatever. Be like, no man, just go in there be like, how much did it cost yesterday to ship my stuff? And don't leave until you get that information or an ex- export or something, right? Um, so it's, it's, once you get all that stuff, you can have a rough approximation or whatever. Uh, it's just super easy to track every single day. I can tell you exactly how much profit we did yesterday and every single day or any random day, name a day. I can look, go back and go there for years and years and years. And it's, and when I talked about this, it's like, look, it's okay to lose money in a day. If that's the plan, the problem is people don't have a plan, right? It's like our plan is we're making money every single day, but like you can enter periods where you're like, Oh, our plan is to lose money. Make the decision ahead of time. You don't want to be halfway through a month and be like, I've lost money every day. Right? Like, and that, that's how people get caught by surprise. And it's just people running bad operations, right? Like leaky ships. Yeah. It's funny because to me, I look at it like, not wanting to look in the mirror a lot of times. At least that's what it was for me in the past where I'm like, I don't want to know, you know, like this is a a black box and I'm scared to like look into it. Um, And it's the same thing as like meditation of like, you're looking at yourself or like going to the gym for the first time. It's like, you actually now have to like face the fact that you're out of shape and like tracking your expenses and tracking what's coming in, what's coming out to me is like now the bare minimum, but it's like the first time you look at it, you're just like, Oh, damn it. Oh, yeah. I definitely think that that's a big cohort of people. I've never been that type of person. Like, uh, I, I, 
someone inside of the Ridge family uh, ended up having a brain tumor. And like, as soon as I heard about that, I was like, oh, I'm getting an MRI. So I went to Pranuvo and got a scan or whatever. And then other people, I make everyone in the company or any executive in the company get one. And like some, there was some pushback internally. They were like, man, I don't want to know. And I'm like, no, you want to know. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, we're figuring it out right now, right? So I've always been that person. It's like, if there's a problem, I would like to understand everything about it so we can address it and move on. Um, so yeah, so I, I get there's a cohort of people who are like that, but dude, it's not going to get better by itself. You know what I mean? If you got a tumor, it's not going away, right? So let's figure it out. Yeah. You've also said you're the type of person who like views and thinks about like end of world scenarios and, and doomsday scenarios. And I'm curious like how that anxiety has helped or hurt while running the business. Well, we've uh, never gone out of business. <laughs> but like, yeah, I think it's it's a very healthy reflection to be like, I am not unstoppable. Smarter people than me have failed. Mm-hmm. What what should I be worried about, right? And, and then for a long time, like, so we don't have any debt on the business, right? And it's because we don't know how to get debt. We were scared of debt, like all of these different type of things, right? Uh, but the business would have grown faster and we and we would be a bigger company if we used debt as a tool. But like maybe, maybe it was a little bit of, we, we just didn't want to go near that because we know that's how you can fail, right? But now it's like, okay, we just need to understand the risks associated with something and then we can make a choice based on that. So, Yeah, speaking of the risks or, or mistakes that you've made, you've said before that three mistakes you've made while building rich – one, you should have spent more money on Facebook and Google. Two, you should have launched more products sooner. And three, you should have ignored brand until we were ready to invest in it. Yeah. Could you expand a little bit on that? Uh, one, Facebook and Google. We diversified our marketing mix as much as possible, as early as possible, right? So I do, I'm do. i doing influencer stuff in 2017. We were the first advertiser on Snapchat. You can go through Snapchat's earnings from then and they mention us as the first advertiser. At least D2C advertiser. Uh, you know, we, we were always looking for new channels. That was a mistake. I should have just really only just cranked up the Facebook dial as, as, as much as I could because it was, in retrospect, I should have realized Facebook's a public company. They've already, they have every single user on every platform they will need to show revenue growth so costs are going to go up. That, that's the reality. That's what I should have realized. Like they're not adding that much more ad space. So like they're just going to charge more for this. So I wish I would have just spent all of my money there as much as I could. Uh, we wasted time, energy, and resources diversifying to be, uh, to, to be a diverse business. Um, so I would have just gone deeper on Facebook or you can just go deeper on Google. You could just make that your whole core business and diversify later. I wish I would have done that. Uh, On that point, does that imply that you should look right now and figure out where to put all your eggs in one basket in terms of the channels? Yeah. If you're going to spend money on ads, find out the best place to spend money and spend as much money as you can there until it's worse than another channel. Right. Like we, we were like, we want a little bit of this and a little bit of email newsletter and a little bit of this. And it's like, no, it would have been so much better just to crank up that dial on Facebook. We would have, would have been easier. We'd have had a leaner team. We would have understood it better. And look, that would have been bad for, you know, during 2021, 2022. And maybe we survived because of that or whatever. Mm. But, uh, right now, I would put all of my money into Facebook. I would just just cram that because it's it's the best money machine there is. Even if it's worse than it used to be, right? It's still the best money machine there is. Um, launching more products. We didn't have debt. We didn't raise money. So all of our dollars went to buying enough wallets to satisfy wallet demand. So we didn't really have time or energy to diversify our products. And when we talked about diversifying products, it was like, it was just too committee based. It was like, should we do this or we're this type of brand? Like we, we didn't really, it, it ties into the third point of like, we were taking brand into account when we should have just been like, what can we sell? Right. Um, I pitched the idea for true classic tees and obviously true classic tees. It's a very old idea. We're going to sell t-shirts. Right. But I remember, I remember in 2017 being like, guys, we have a huge male customer base. We could just sell them T-shirts and like trying to rally everybody around. And I couldn't because there was like, why would we sell T-shirts? We sell wallets. And it was just a huge fucking pain in the ass. But 
Uh, yeah, now we're paying for it. And the next, uh, we launched watches as a category, we launched rings as a category. And we have like four new categories that'll come out in the next 18 months. So like entirely new categories to the business. How do you figure out which categories to add or which products to add? Uh, well, watches and rings were a debate. Uh, and then now it's just like, we're going to try shit. And like, if it doesn't work, we'll just remove it. Right. Like there's, I don't think there's any brand risk. Like you think about your brand more than anyone else does. Your best customer has been on your website maybe 10 times. Right. So like if there's something new or like, just the odds of anybody seeing or caring are, are very, very low. So we're just gonna get way more experimental with that. And was there a period of time where you're just like, uh, like if we if we launch this product, it's gonna hurt us. Yeah, dude, that was ten years of the business. <laughs> it was it was so long. Us us being like, I we don't think that makes sense, and it's like, now we're just like, fuck it, dude. Like we need to fix LTV as a problem. It is the impending doom. So like you're gonna see us get into a bunch of categories. Okay, so you figure out that lifetime value of a customer is the problem. Like how do you go about diagnosing that or seeing that or making the realization that like oh wow. This is the issue here. Oh, well, we've been on the entire time. We've known forever, right? 10 years? Yeah, yeah. When you sell a wallet that's guaranteed for life, one, and like people accuse me of trying to get like not have wallet competition when I say this. Dude, if you want to sell wallets, please sell wallets. But it is the worst fucking category to be in, right? Uh, number one reason, men do not care about their wallets, right? I talked to the the, the CEO of Coach. His, his, uh, his name's Lou. He... Uh, he was the CEO for like 50 years, right? He took him from 6 million to 6 billion in revenue, a crazy fucking business. And he's like, he heard about our business and he's like, yeah, men don't buy wallets. He's like, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, he's like, you should sell women's wallets. Women buy wallet, right? And and from his experience, he's like, yeah, men have no loyalty. Like they don't think about it. Like they just, it's something that just goes right over their head. They want to buy fishing equipment. They want to buy golf clubs. Like they don't want to buy wallets. Uh, so it's a horrible fucking category. And then it's, it has very low intent, right? Mm. So every day, like maybe a thousand men search men's wallet looking to buy one, right? Every day, 50,000 people search men's ring looking to buy one. It's like a, men's rings wow. are a way bigger category. So like we turn rings on and immediately we get to, you know, five figures in revenue with doing nothing, just like having rings, right? So anyway, wallets are a horrible fucking category. Uh, repeat rates are incredibly low because you only need one, right? Like even – why. Have you bought a wallet in your life? No. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there you go, man. You know what I have? And not to plug the wrong thing, but I've got a Smartish right here, which is amazing. And I would buy one of these from Ridge if you came out with a phone case that had it. But I don't know if that goes against the, the business. Yeah, yeah. Look, and, and we're looking at stuff like that. But uh, but yeah, like that's the dorkiest thing. So like... I love that. I love that <laughs> yeah. you think that. Yeah. Um, and you're, you are financially incentivized to say that. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, men men don't fucking buy wallets, and if they do buy wallets, they're only going to buy one of them. Uh, so we've always known LTV was the, the weakest part of the business. Um, like we saw our repeat rates, so like it's one point one, right? We're like a, a healthy business, and a, an apparel business is a two, right? What what? Could you break that down for me? What is that? Yeah. Mean? So it's it's um, twelve months after your first purchase how many more purchases is the average customer making? I see. Right? So like, you know, we get an additional 10% purchases out of that cohort, right? And it, we've, we've got that up over time, right? But like, if you buy a shirt from, I'm gonna plug Buck Mason or Cuts or any of these companies, right? If you if you buy a shirt within 12 months, you're more than likely to make it. The average customer makes another purchase, right? Mm. Um, that's like apparel companies, right? And you know, supplement companies are probably even higher than that. and everybody's on that spectrum where it's the, the, the absolute bottom is one because they've already made a purchase. Right. So we're at 1.1. We're not very much off that bottom. Right. Wow. So the, the folks of the business has been to increase that over time. So we went from 1.1 to 1.2 to 1.3. The goal is to get to two, right? That's like a best in class standard. So we're working our way up that, that ladder. It's so interesting because when I hear you speak and I, and I go through your writings, it's almost like you were, you've been playing this game handcuffed because of the category that you're in, which is like, oh my God, when you're given more tools and more options as an operator, I feel like that's just going to lead to massive amounts of growth and more people will know you as an operator. and You'll be more understood for how successful you've been. Do you, do you feel that way as well? Well, look, 
that's a very romantic view of it. That'd be awesome. That's what but, I do around here. <laughs> romantic views only. Yeah. Uh, the reality is, uh, you know, constraint breeds strength, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like you have to be held back, right, a little bit to build up those muscles, right? So we're probably good operators because of the constraints on our business, right? Like we, we learned to be profitable because there was no LTV, right? Like we couldn't rely on that. Like, oh yeah, we'll make money later, right? Like, no, we had to fund shit off that wall of purchase. So we had to get really good at acquisition uh, to make money. <laughs> so like we had, we had to figure all this stuff out. But I'm hoping I can take those muscles and enter a new sport, which would be having LTV, having repeat rate and having new categories to sell. Yeah. Have you heard Alex Ramosi talk about like being in a level two opportunity, but a level 10 skill set or something like that? Like one of his mentors told him that early. And when I hear your story and hear what you're talking about, it's like very similar. But I don't know if you would call wallets a level two opportunity, but it might be. I've, I haven't heard that that uh, the concept, but I'll check it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like to end these podcasts with a challenge for people. You, Someone listened to us for an hour or more, and what are they actually going to do with that information? Where are, gonna, where are they going to take, and what action should they take after listening to us? Does a challenge come to mind from everything we spoke about or something we haven't covered yet? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'd probably break into a couple of buckets. If you are a consumer brand listening to this, uh, you should... 100% know how much money you made yesterday, right? Like that's the bare minimum. And like not only the executive listening to this, like the marketing manager, the ops manager, ever get everyone around that number, right? Rally around that like it's your North Star and do that historically. Figure it out all the way down, right? Figure it from the first day of operation till now. So you can chart what, what's happened to your profit seasonality, learn your business that way, right? Like so that is my my challenge to the operators and then for everyone else if you're an agency guy a content creator whatever just start creating way more content like just like more volume yeah. 10 clips from this episode yeah dude 100 percent. and like it doesn't have to be good like look at my Substack, man if i can like it's great your Substack's great yeah but like it's unpolished it's unedited i just write down whatever the fuck i want and i send it and like they take 20 minutes a week that's, that's what it is it's like here's what i want to talk about today motherfuckers uh and that's that's just like don't be scared of, of of feedback or failure or whatever else like just start fucking doing it um you're like you know don't be scared to look in the mirror i think that that's that, that's a great analogy right where people like are so scared to see the reflection it's like dude you are who you are you're not getting any you're not getting any uglier man so let's just start um but yeah i think those are two really great challenges for two different cohorts of people i love that that's very helpful and i appreciate your time here and your wisdom. Thank you for sharing it with me. If you want more from this man, Sean Ecom on Twitter, seanecom.substack.com as well for a great Substack, the Operators Podcast, and of course, go check out ridge.com if you don't want a dorky phone case. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, man. Appreciate it. Thanks.